Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the quantum brain. My guest is Dr. Amit Goswami, former professor of physics at the University of Oregon, currently director of the Center for Quantum Activism. He is the author of The Self-Aware Universe, How Consciousness Creates the Material World. God is not dead. What quantum physics tells us about our origins and how we should live. Physics of the Soul, the quantum book of living, dying, reincarnation, and immortality. How quantum activism can save civilization. And most recently, co-authored with Dr. Valentina Anasor, The Quantum Brain. Dr. Goswami is in India, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Amit. It is a real pleasure to be with you once again. I am very pleased as well. The last time that we were together in the studio, as I recall, was well over 20 years ago. It was after you had published uh, your book, The Self-Aware Universe, which I see as the basis for your present book on the quantum brain. And at that point, you, you had written about your insight, a very crucial insight, if, if I understand it correctly, that the uh, consciousness resides in the, if, if I'm correct, the quantum wave function of quantum physics. Consciousness collapses out of the various possibilities that quantum wave function offers to the human observer. Um, but it is not observer's ego consciousness, it's the consciousness that is the basis of the observer ego consciousness, the ground of being itself. So that consciousness is usually unconscious in us, and um, that's where the choice happens. But if we can tune into that consciousness, then we also get to participate in the choice. That is called the process of creativity. In creativity, we become participatory with the universe. So I think it's fair to say that what you have done as a quantum physicist is is to take the ancient philosophy of India, uh, the Vedanta philosophy, which suggests that consciousness is the ground of being, and to unite that with physics. Yes, it is an integration of science and spirituality, no doubt. And of course, it's um, it was discovered in India 7,000 years ago, but rediscovered again and again all over the world, in China, in uh, Greece, in Middle East, and Native American traditions all over the world, uh, similar Samanic traditions. So it is certainly not to be identified as Eastern or Western like that. And that has become a habit, intellectual habit in today's West, and that is the definite uh, bugaboo against the uh, new integration that is happening between science and spirituality. 
I think it's fair to say that uh, the core idea that you're expressing is consistent with what uh, the great religious scholar Houston Smith calls the primordial tradition that you can find in every religion and every culture uh, throughout human history. Yes, absolutely. What Aldous Huxley called perennial philosophy, this is it. And we have discovered the key of how perennial philosophy works. That was the only thing those guys did not know. They knew the philosophy, they knew the basic ontology of everything, but they did not know how the ontology becomes cosmology for us, how the world manifests. So today we're going to be talking about the brain and how this vision of consciousness as the very ground of being, how that really relates to the human brain and the role of the brain in mediating consciousness. Yes, this is the key where quantum physics comes into the picture. You know, uh, Newton uh, was the basic scientists who discovered modern science in the mathematical sense. And um, Newton did a great job, but it is a science of objects. Let's fully understand it. It is a science of how an object moves and how to predict the motion of objects at all times. It does not at all talk about the subject of experience. It does not talk about the uh, self that we experience, experiencer. And this has been a problem of science ever since. We knew the trick of how to do science of objects, but we did not know the secret of how to bring consciousness in the science, because consciousness is not an object. Objects are inside it, but consciousness is also the experiencer of objects. This has been the problem. And then quantum physics came about, and von Neumann discovered measurement theory, and measurement theory opened up this door. Initial idea that von Neumann had was individual consciousness, ego, and that can be objected to, and indeed was objected to, paradoxes were raised, and then uh, I solved those problems, and uh, that is precisely what we are talking about. But the observer effect that von Neumann discovered is the basis for it. What is that? Is that, look, quantum calculus gives us possibility. And that's it. Wave function gives us possibility. Possibility cannot be actualized with material interactions. This is von Neumann's mathematical theorem. If you stay within quantum physics, and we have no, no reason not to, quantum physics has been the most verified science of all times, so uh, uh, there's just no alternative to say that material interactions cannot do it. It got to get outside of material interactions. So von Neumann suggested, look, only way we can do it is there is always an observer in whatever we do, experiment or whatever. Without the observer, there is nothing. So the idea of observer effect, that without the observer, we do not collapse. That is the fundamental thing. And then it's a question of, okay, what does the observer have that is non-material? And von uh, and himself suggested, well, consciousness got to be non-material because you cannot get the material way, the experiencer of the um, what is being observed. And um, But he thought it's the individual consciousness, the ego that does it. And um, my big insight was that if we give up that idea that it is the ego does it, 
and introduced the idea instead that the brain is a very complex machinery in which there exists a trapping mechanism which traps consciousness into it to have an identity with the brain who in the process of measurement then the observer gets a self it has the immediacy of experience in which the actual observation actual choice is made but then because we don't participate in that choice in our ordinary ego consciousness we miss that the ego consciousness comes about half a second later this is neuroscientists have measured it but all this is brain mechanism built into it brain has what it takes i call it a tangled hierarchy between memory and perception apparatuses and brain also has what it takes to produce the ego the conditioning the personality it all is due to reflection in the mirror of memory that the brain makes so in this way brain is uh, a conduit a representation maker you can also think of it as a hardware which makes the representation of our conscious experiences and that includes the self experience as well as the objects and not only material objects sensing but also thinking mental objects feeling vital objects even intuition objects of consciousness called archetypes it's not so the brain is a great instrument unfortunately evolution has given us a very uh, unfortunately very poor uh, brain in some country, some ways negative emotional circuits pleasure circuits addiction circuits um, uh, tendency of too much information processing the ego development with uh, conditioning and misuse of it misunderstandings all these base level conditions uh, is what we identify with if we stay within the brain that was given to us at birth and develop it with environmental conditioning only however we can also be aware that a baby is born with quantum facilities quantum potentialities so as abraham maslow first said if we learn to take care of our lower needs and higher needs then we can actualize the infinite potentiality available to us the so quantum physics is finally making maslow's uh, vision uh, come to truth come come to aliveness You uh, earlier described the brain as having a trapping mechanism that I think what you're suggesting is that it traps some of this universal consciousness and and creates a membrane about it uh, so that we think of ourselves as separate from uh, the larger consciousness that we partake of. That's it. The initial separateness is is very flimsy. we can still get out of it um, people who have the no self experience uh, the buddhist philosophy talks about it and uh, buddha himself jesus all these great people they had this experience when you have that experience then you are free of the illusion but the separateness that the brain creates is uh, in some sense illusory separateness the mechanism is a mechanism to make it appear that consciousness is trapped and then the conditioning takes care of the deeper separateness initially it's just an appearance i can get out or get in at will uh, that's the uh, enlightened among us 
But if you are not there, then you are stuck with all this conditioning and personality buildup that happens later. Buddhists called it um, dependent co-arising. So this process of give and take between memory and perception, every time you perceive, we memorize, then memory influences our next perception. This process, dependent co-arising, changes the self from a free, infinite self to a very conditioned local self that we call the ego. So this is the well, main base level condition. And then if we wake up to the infinite possibilities of the quantum brain, then we can change. The infinite possibilities of the quantum brain, because the, the quantum wave function that you're describing is a, a probability function. Exactly. It is a probability function. It is the, we call it possibility function, a better depiction. Uh, probability makes you sound like it is all Newtonian, but it is the really possibility and we choose. We choose. Consciousness chooses. Um, it can be unconscious, but it can also be conscious, in which case we get a creative insight. And those insights are how we co-create the universe along with consciousness. Because as I understand it, Amit, the human brain being a physical object uh, itself is, is really, according to all the science we have, not capable of free will, of independent choice. It's a deterministic object, whereas consciousness, uh, one of the fundamental qualities of being a conscious being is to have purpose, intention, and free will. Yes, exactly. So in the ego state, we lose much of the freedom that we have to choose. Instead of infinite possibilities, possibilities become very limited to a spectrum of conditioned possibilities. I don't have a single uh, answer to every problem. What happens is that the conditioning never goes that deep. It never becomes one-to-one, -one, a single stimulus, single response. Instead, what we have, a single stimulus, will produce, produce a variety of responses, like I can I come to a crossroad, I can go left, I can go right, I can go straight, I can even stop. So in this way, um, we retain some choice, so it give, does give up the clear indication that I'm not a machine, machines don't have any choice, I have a spectrum of choices, but it's a very limited choice within the known. I can take any of my known, uh, uh, that is where probability comes in. One of my known responses and respond that way. So um, uh, the, the ego is still uh, have some free will, and therefore we should never think that we are machine, but we have become machine-like because it is very close to a machine. The choice does not go beyond the spectrum in which we have been conditioned by the sociocultural uh, milieu, the environment. Now, I suppose it's fair to say in the decades since you first wrote the self-aware universe that neuroscience in general hasn't really yet begun to pick up on the idea. The neuroscientists still basically believe that consciousness is a product of uh, the nervous system. Yes. In fact, even as, as, as recently as 2015, I have read 
neuroscientists speculate about the new experiments that are coming out. You know, the new uh, functional MRI experiment is clearly say, uh, showing us that although in general, when we have the ego experience, it is true that the conscious ex- consciousness that we call a place where consciousness exists is a little place in the prefrontal cortex. So ego is localized, we can say that. Um, but uh, there are also experiences like spiritual experience, people who meditate for thousands of hours, their brain changes. This is a very beautiful book um, uh, by Goldman and Davidson, uh, Alter Traits. This book uh, came out just a few years ago. And they, they studied these meditators. And this, for these meditators, the brain is not like that. It, the self-agency is not located in a small place. It's all over the brain. And brain becomes coherent between these different portions. And there's no way, no way that any Newtonian model can be built uh, all over coherence in the brain. Only the quantum model can give us that answer. So we now have experimental verification of the ideas. And of course, even in, even when we last met, we talked about non-locality and non-locality between observers have been verified by direct transfer potential measurements. One person sees a light, uh, light flashes that changes the brain waves. But the, the second person who is not looking at light flashes simply by virtue of meditating with the intention that they will communicate instantly. This other person picks up the brain waves. Imagine that. Something concrete, something physical. How does brain waves, electrical waves, travel from one brain to another without an electromagnetic connection? This mystery materialism cannot solve. So materialism is dead. We have the quantum model in place. Materialism, however, can take consolation that we certainly have mechanical tendencies. And when we develop those mechanical tendencies, the mechanical model, the material model, predicts fairly well. So it is not useless. It's certainly half of our existence. But the better half is in the quantum brain. That's where creativity is, that's where love is, that's where all the archetypes are. You cannot be fair without fair to another without developing the quantum brain. This is why so much racism, so much sexism today. Now, the research that you just described of uh, stimulating the the brain of a person in a distant location uh, with flashing lights as I recall, uh, that's work that you participated in yourself along with Dr. Grinberg from Mexico. Uh, let's talk a, l- a little bit more. This is such important research. I want to make sure that our viewers don't miss the significance of it. Yeah, this was even before Self-Power Universe came out. Somehow, this fellow, he uh, found my scientific paper published in a physics journal. I was very surprised to receive his call and he says, we have, we are doing experiments to prove your point and um, please come and check us out. So I said, of course, this is tremendous news. So I went and um, uh, indeed, uh, two people meditate together. This is the part that 
Greenberg did. His originality really lay in the fact Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen in 1935 predicted that if two objects correlate, and they are talking about material objects, any two material objects, if they come close together, they interact and correlate. That is not a problem at all. But you know, if uh, you and I interact and even touch each other, uh, nothing like that correlation would necessarily happen. So what is the mystery of making two people correlated? And Greenberg figured out that if two people meditate together with the intention of correlation, correlation produces instant communication. That's the idea. So they are meditating with the idea that we two people will meditate with the, with, with the, will intend that we communicate instantly whatever happens to us. Whatever experience happened to us during this period, we communicate instantly. So that intention, meditative intention, and they really had to maintain that meditative intention during the whole um, 45 minutes or so of the experiment. But people do that. Many people are capable of doing that. People who could not do that, by the way, never showed any transfer potential. But people who were able to do that very mysteriously, both brains are connected to individual EEG machines. And one uh, who sees the light flashes, the EEG response, that's easy to understand. Brain waves, uh, electrical activity captured by the EEG. The other person is just sitting, meditating. So how that person gets the uh, transport potential of similar strength and phase, this is uh, completely just so amazing. When you really see the experiment performed before you, you were just amazed. And then we looked at the data very thoroughly and uh, we analyzed it. And in the same visit, we wrote the paper. I still remember. Hakobo and I, he took me to his hideout. And we are talking about this, and I looked at him and said, Hakuba, have you, do you realize what we have done? We have had the first experimental verification of the existence of God. <laughs> and he was beaming with happiness. <laughs> but that is true. The non-locality is what God is about, this oneness of consciousness. It's very interesting. Uh, I understand that not too long after that, uh, he disappeared. He disappeared. That is, there is still a mystery. Uh, you know, um, this is the mystery that uh, people have tried to solve. Uh, I have even gotten calls from Mexican police, repeated calls. Uh, they, are, they tried their best to find answers. Uh, there are many rumors. And this most sad thing is that, you know, uh, I invited him to India. Uh, to a conference, and he came, gave the uh, wonderful talk, and um, uh, he and the Indian collaborators were going to do the experiment at real distance, 12,000 mile distance. And all that plan was thwarted. He apparently, uh, from my understanding, he was planning to come to India on his way. And that's when he disappeared from the, uh, from the airport. And this is just so strange. Uh, just no explanation. Nobody has found any explanation. 
Well, it's worth remembering him and the research that you did uh, because it's very significant research and hopefully other people will pick up on it and uh, continue that work. Yeah, I think people are picking up uh, gradually. The materialist paradigm is very established now. And Jeff, frankly, you know, uh, you are an expert on paranormal. You have been uh, from the basic uh, PhD work. And you know how hard it is to even sell paranormal phenomena, which is totally based on solid experimental data. But these materialists, they're staunch uh, disbelievers, they're professional disbelievers. When you become a professional disbeliever, when the belief in materialism is dogma, then uh, we cannot we cannot change you. Only you can change you. So the changing has been happening very gradually. It's happening in the medical profession. It's happening in the psychology profession the most profusely. And so truly we can say that today we have uh, transpersonal quantum uh, psychology that psychologists more and more coming to terms with. And we can also say that the alternative medicine community are picking up. I see. Earlier, Amit, you referred to what I think neuroscientists call the binding problem. That is, different parts of our brain are, are receiving energy. We have billions of neurons. Each neuron has thousands of synapses. Uh, so, electrical signals are traveling all over the brain from all of our senses and our internal processes, and yet our experience appears to be coherent. We have a sense of uh, unity uh, in our experience as we go about our day. And you describe that as the result, I think, of, of quantum correlation, quantum coherence taking place in the brain. Yes, exactly. And now that quantum coherence has been demonstrated by those uh, functional MRI imaging techniques. What they do is very beautiful. They not only image the various parts of the brain, but they measure the oxygenation, which tells you that which parts of the brain are active. And all of um, uh, the normal people that they tested, the, uh, indeed only a little part of the brain has the so-called self-agency and the brain fractures between the task that brain is doing and the self, which is how we do things. So when we do things, we never do things continuously. We can't. The nature of the brain would not allow it. So that's what happened. The default area. That's the self-agency and the task-related area. Just a couple of areas involved. And all of it, all of these people, the transformed people, whose brain is different, coherent brain, quantum brain, their brain shows a very different story. Much um, coherence between different parts of the brain. And also a preponderance of the uh, brain waves in high frequency. Brain waves change too. Normal people have preponderance of beta waves, which is frequency between 13.5 and about 35 hertz. But these people, they have uh, brain frequency of like over 40 hertz. They're just living, no doubt, they have an extraordinary, extraordinary ability of attention, extraordinary ability of concentration. And so it's like neurosurgeons have that kind of that kind of ability. Mathematicians have that kind of ability, but ordinary people can never uh, 
have brain waves that high. This is called the gamma brain wave. So ordinary people have beta uh, dominance, and these people have gamma dominance. So this is a telltale sign, and it just cannot be ignored. Something special has happened when we meditate and becoming become creative. This quantum leaps uh, that changes the brain. Brain becomes coherent. Quantum brain is realized, and then we function at a better physiological level, better level of happiness, better level of intelligence. You know, somebody defined, even neuroscientists have defined already, the intelligence is the ability of using different parts of the brain for finding the instant response. But that ability is the quantum ability. And so without the quantum, what we do is we intellectually think uh, one engage the one, engage the other, and engage the other. We do it locally, and that takes time. So uh, uh, only the quantum people can take that instant appropriate action. People who are awakened to their quantum self, they can count on producing appropriate action moment to moment. That is the real intelligence. So in that way, the quantum brain is promising us such wonderful future. All one has to do is to be aware of it. First of all, the worldview got to change. And second of all, avoid the pitfalls of growing up, like trauma, etc. Psychologically, there are many problems with our growing up. We do not grow up in a very perfect fashion, especially in this day and age when computers have come on and cell phones People become addicted to information processing. These are really, really dumbing down people, keeping them away from meaning and purpose. You mentioned it in the beginning. But meaning and purpose is the basis of quantum brain. Meaning and purpose, to explore meaning and purpose, you have to have creativity, you have to have the quantum brain. So these people really get dumbed down to engage the quantum brain. So my hope is that uh, people gradually become aware that so much potentiality they're ignoring, you know. And that this is available to every one of us, every one of us. In other words, what you're suggesting is that although the brain and the nervous system is subject to the laws of determination, and in fact, you talked about addiction circuits in the brain, we might feel that we're hopelessly addicted, that it's out of our control, or that even our, our genetics, that we are the victim of the, the genes that we inherited. And what you're saying is that at the quantum level that people access through meditation, and spiritual disciplines, we can achieve a, a degree of true freedom that transcends these biological limitations. And, and I think if I understand you correctly, even changes them permanently. Yes. I think this is the basic key, that we can change the physiology that we are born with. And uh, people already talk about, uh, you know, uh, rewiring the brain. This is a big hoopla now. Um, that's all good. But rewiring the brain is not you know, reliving experiences at the same level that we have lived already. That's still living in the known. We have to start living, taking risk and live in the unknown. Unknown meaning that we have to explore the unknown. We have to be creative. And this is the way we release the quantum brain. And once we do that, we improve the physiology itself. Uh, in, in the uh, spiritual tradition, this is called opening of the chakras. Uh, 
So we open not only the chakras between our eyebrows, the brow chakra, but we also open the heart. This is where the heart comes in. You know, spiritual people are always talking about the heart. And also the nasal chakra. This is another accomplishment that we talk about in the quantum brain, that we not only have self in the brain, we actually also have self in the heart and the uh, navel chakra, but brain uh, has taken over those functions, so normally people are not aware of that. But when we train the brain to achieve the quantum, then the brain releases its hold on the heart and the navel. We start beginning to feel this levels of experience. And when brain and heart is together, then we get the optimization. And that optimization produces the kind of rewiring of the software in the brain that we cannot achieve without considering quantum physics and quantum brain. This is the future of us. The infinite capacity extends not only to infinite capacity to um, do intellectual work, but infinite capacity to discover love, infinite capacity to discover self-confidence, courage to engage, and infinite capacity of relating to people in new ways. It's very interesting that you brought up the concept of, of the chakras. Many years ago, I heard a lecture by William Tiller, who was at the time the uh, chair of the material science department at Stanford University, and he described the chakras as transducers between the uh, endocrine system of the, of the physical body and, and I guess what you would call this quantum level, although I don't think he had the language for it at the time, but he would have said maybe the realm of pure spirit. <laughs> yes, he would. Uh, oh, Bill Taylor was one of the one of the great uh, scientists of our time. Um, yes, uh, it, 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 they are kind of uh, they, when we become uh, when we awaken our quantum brain, we really do get some control over the endocrine system. So he was completely right. Um, eventually, of course, the uh, newest understanding that we have developed, by the way, uh, all this is developed in collaboration with a doctor, medical doctor, very avant-garde, named Valentina Onisar. So uh, what we have uh, discovered is that the, uh, there is a chakra in the midbrain, and that really how uh, this midbrain chakra has itself. So midbrain is very poorly understood today. People think, materialists think, that the uh, negative emotional circuits, pleasure circuits, these things we are unconscious of because the brain makes them. In quantum way of looking at things, brain makes nothing. Brain is just potentiality. Consciousness makes the brain, and along with it, all the circuits that brain has. But how does consciousness make these uh, circuits? Because the emotional brain, the midbrain, had existed before human beings came into the picture. Mammals already have it. And there is that the secret of mammalian consciousness. Mammalian consciousness is not a thinking consciousness. They don't have the cortex. What they have is the feeling consciousness, and that's in the midbrain. And midbrain then has a chakra where we have a self, but we have forgotten it. Neocortex has 
created such power over us that we are not aware of it. So, Bill Tiller's idea is completely correct because when we take charge of the midbrain chakra, then look at what happens. Midbrain has the uh, pituitary gland, which controls all the hormonal glands, and it also has hypothalamus, an organ which controls the pituitary gland. So if we, if we become conscious of the midbrain chakra, then we gain total control on our negative emotion. This is where, uh, you know, the Buddhist uh, psychologists insist that one can uh, develop complete equanimity about emotions. This is what they were talking about. So they somehow awaken their midbrain chakra. The uh, word that uh, Tiller used that stuck in my mind was transducer, as if you need something to go from one energy level, the energy of, of pure spirit or of uh, quantum possibilities, down to the macro level of organs and glands, that there, there's an intermediate level. Yeah, I think transducer is the right way of thinking about it, because what we are talking about is vital energy. So, uh, what happens at the chakras when we lift the energy from ordinary physiology to this awakened physiology, this happens because we connected to consciousness. So, it, the, from the level of ordinary lived vital energy, we create new vital energy with the help of consciousness itself. So, it is a transducer that can change the hormonal functions and that can give us total equanimity in our action because we will not overuse any of these hormones and the overuse is what produces things like addiction as well as stress-related disease. So um, uh, we uh, finally would be able to control it, control these transducers. So they will be used with, with, with judgment, with our judgment, our wisdom. I think a lot of people in, in conventional neuroscience these days uh, equate consciousness with the reptilian brain, even below the mammalian brain, the, uh, the reticular activating system that sometimes uh, is, is said to correlate with alertness. Yeah, I know, I know. This is that such a, such a, because, you know, the, the, that, that part of the brain is responsible for some of the important molecules, for example, dopamine. And dopamine makes us happy. So this kind of thing is very tempting to assume, because one, one aspect of consciousness is when it expands, we become happy, right? So they think that dopamine is what makes that feeling of expansion of consciousness. It's a molecular phenomenon. And um, so they make theories like that, that maybe the reticular uh, activation, that is all it takes to get conscious. No, it's just a trigger that has to open in order for consciousness to happen. But and it's a necessary condition, not sufficient. The sufficient condition is that tangled hierarchical trap that the brain creates. In, in other words, conventional scientists believe that consciousness exists inside the brain. And I think what you're saying is, no, it's the opposite. The brain exists inside of consciousness. Precisely. And we have to see it that way. We have to see that if we hold on to the idea that matter is everything, if we hold on to the idea that brain creates our experiences, 
then we'll forever end up with an incomplete science. We'll not be able to explain why a material object, which is an object, how it can produce a subject which experiences the object. <laughs> so how can brain create the experiencer of the brain? You know, Saint Dexuper, you'll recognize the name, great saint. He said, the problem of consciousness is that what you're looking for is what is looking. <laughs> that is the part that is impossible to explain with saying that brain is producer because brain is not what can look. Brain is what we can look for. It's an object. <laughs> I think we should uh, also bring up the subject of reincarnation. I know it's very important in Indian tradition. There's a lot of Western research now at the University of Virginia in particular, where uh, well over a thousand uh, cases of uh, young children remembering their past lives have been solved in the sense that the children identify an actual person who, who can be uh, located. That, that correlates with their memories of a previous lifetime. How how does the reincarnation research fit into your model of the quantum brain? It's enormous because they, you know, one of the um, very uh, intriguing experiment that neuroscience has produced. It was done in 1950s. The, ex the experiment itself is, 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 is very cruel to animals. So, uh, people, please forgive me for uh, citing this experiment, but it is important for uh, our knowledge, uh, especially of reincarnation, because it proved a very important thing. Uh, uh, the name is Lashley, Carl Lashley. He was the neuroscientist. He trained rats to travel a wire maze, and one part of the one end of the wire maze is a piece of cheese, the other end has electrical shock. So rats very quickly learn to find the cheese and avoid the shock. That's the learning. And then he looked for the memory of the learned aspect in the brain. So how would he do that? In those days, this experiment was allowed. So he was allowed to chop up part of the brain of the rat, trained rat, and then various parts, and then look at the ability. Can the rat still find the cheese? And indeed, even with 50% of the brain cut off, some of the rats could still walk and smell and, and found the cheese. Which is an amazing thing. So where is the where is the uh, uh, circuit? Where is the memory circuit? Memory should have gone because you know they, he did different experiments with the different parts chopped off. So how could the memory escape? So people thought memory is all over. That's where the holographic theory came about. But that never could be popular. That never could be solved because the mechanism hologram is very specific. You have to produce interference of coherent things. The holograms cannot be produced without quantum action. So at that time, quantum aspects were not known at all, and they could not give any support to holographic. And when I looked at the data initially, I was also puzzled. But then it occurred to me, aha, so this is showing that the uh, memory is not in the brain. It's outside of the brain. It's not in the brain. That's another answer, which nobody thought of. 
that without petrol stage it has to be in the brain. Brain is the only thing. So where could else uh, where else could it be? But for um, uh, me, quantum physics has non-locality outside of space and time. We also have the concept of unconscious. And memory, of course, is unconscious. We, when we choose, then only the memory becomes conscious, then only when we recall. So in this way, if memory is located outside of space and time, then I can recall it, but another person also can recall it because it's outside of space and time, it's not located in my brain. So another person in the future, if they leave the kind of propensities that I have, then I can see that, well, that is my reincarnation. So mystery of reincarnation is solved by simply realizing that memory of learning, the traits that we learn, they are not local in the brain. The learning capacity is located outside of the brain, non-local memory. And you know what, Jeff? The surprising thing is that in the Vedanta, there is a mention of Akashic memory. This is so amazing, you know. So they knew that something has to be outside of the brain, Akashic memory. Akasha means, Kasha is space, Akasha is outside of space, not space. So this is just simply an amazing story to tell. And of course, uh, Stevenson data and ever, uh, since then, many other, many other researchers have. There's so much data now that is explained by the quantum theory of reincarnation. What can I tell you? I wrote a book, Physics of the Soul, um, on it. So it, it is, it's a very rich subject. But the, the brain uh, shows the effect of reincarnation in another way. If we bring reincarnational trait from our past incarnation, that to contribute to our growing up, to our personality, to our memories, and then look at what happens. For all people, the reincarnational memory is not realized all at the same time. They are triggered only when a suitable environment comes about, suitable challenge comes about, and they need it to be trigger. So in this way, somebody can have a propensity of learning language very quickly and others can have that propensity a little later. Somebody can have the same thing with maths. Some early, some later. And this is what we actually find. Of course, the school system is all homogeneous. You have to learn writing, reading at the age of, you know, kindergarten and then Math, uh, starting all at the same time, this is a terrible wastage of our talent. No wonder some people fall backwards because their reincarnational uh, capacity is not released yet. And some people may not even have much reincarnational uh, traits to bring to this life. So in this way, uh, we really have to revamp some of our social systems. Um, to live the quantum way, but it will be so much better for all of us. Well, now you've ascribed reincarnation to the fact that memory exists outside of the body. And you've also suggested, if I catch your drift correctly, that when physicists talk about non-locality or parapsychologists also use that phrase, non-locality, it seems to be almost identical to the ancient Sanskrit term akasha. 
and, and the idea of the Akashic records, no space, outside of time and space completely. But what about this sense of self? Because reincarnation implies not just the continuation of memories, but those memories are experienced as belonging to the, the self, that it's the same person or the same spirit or soul that goes from lifetime to lifetime. How, how does that work? It is a fact that without that brain-spangled hierarchy, we cannot collapse a web function. In other words, we cannot have experiences without being embodied. So this, this um, uh, non-local memory, non-local software, it travels but without a self-experience. There is no experience while we are disembodied. The experience, however, can occur in two ways. When we die, then we are still connected in a way until we actually really brain completely dies. This is what produces that near-death phenomenon, where we are dying, but the brain is not completely dead yet. So in that ore, the brain is being revived. We did die, but the brain is being revived again. So in quantum physics, there is a phenomenon called delayed choice. In this delayed choice, using this delayed choice, the uh, memory of the after-death journey can be recaptured by a person who has survived the death and brought back to life by cardiologists, and um, they can share their story, and indeed their story is amazing. They see some of the things that Tibetan Book of the Dead describes. So, um, amazingly, these near-death experiences give us another indirect verification of the whole reincarnation and survival of after-death phenomenon. And similarly, near-birth. Stan Graf has done experiments with people with holotropic breathing, and what happens is very interesting. You know, they, they start remembering their prenatal, perinatal, and even before uh, birth experiences. Uh, that too is an example of delayed choice. The experience is collapsing after the uh, baby is born, but the uh, root of the experience has happened in the journey during the uh, death. So after death, journey directly cannot be experienced in the proper time in that way, but in a delayed basis, some of them can be experienced, and this explains why we have such pictures at Tibetan Book of the Dead, or any book of the dead, or pictures like hell, heaven, all those pictures develop because people actually have, some people actually have had these experiences, they were stored in the baby's brain, of course baby could not quite experience them, but they got into the brain, and later on, when you take, do this reversing kind of thing, uh, holotropic breathing kind of thing, those memories come back, and you find, ah, I did all this, but I didn't know, I didn't remember. Now, delayed choice, as I understand the way you're using the term, is, is related to the idea of uh, retrocognition or backward causality. In other words, at the quantum level, time does not move in only one direction. Time can go backwards and forwards uh, equally. 
Exactly. I mean, as parapsychologists, you very well know that parapsychologists have been drawing attention to the phenomenon of precognition for a very long time. So that is the first example, actually, of uh, delayed choice. And even before the near-death experiences came about. And now we, ex- we explain even very wonderful experiences, uh, spiritual experiences called Nidhvikalpa Samadhi using the delayed choice mechanism. Because it is a fact that our uh, uh, consciousness as the ground of being is unconscious in us. I have, I have said that before. That is the theory. Indeed, we cannot experience it in, in, in a normal way. But these mystics, they say that they had this experience. They have, they have somehow experienced it anyway. And this was always a mystery. Are they lying or what are they saying? How can that be? How can you experience the unconscious? There is no awareness, no separateness in the unconscious. And the mystics are even teaching that. They themselves are teaching that. <laughs> so how can you experience anything in a state where you are completely united with reality? And the answer is, of course, that a, a delayed, in a delayed choice we can. When we wake up, the uh, that that aspect of it, because the brain is still there, it can still uh, make memories, and so it is coming as a delayed choice memory to us, remembering a delayed choice experience that happened retroactively, as you said. Well, I would think another interpretation that would be consistent with Indian philosophy would be the idea that when when we're not in a physical body, we have a different kind of a body, an astral body, uh, an etheric body. Uh, I think uh, the Sanskrit word might be koshas uh, f- for these these additional non-physical uh, bodies that we have. Yeah, and we have a complete explanation. We indeed we uh, we prescribe a new kind of health science based on the fact that we have five bodies. Each of these koshas, indeed, um, not all of them uh, we have actually bodies in the sense that not all of them we can have direct experience um, that can be memorized. For example, the quantum self itself can never be memorized. There was no memory before and after. But the quantum self produces a memory, that memory can be uh, lived. So we um, uh, now uh, completely understand that what has, a, what has a body, and indeed in this way of reckoning, we have the physical body, we have a vital body, which gives us the physiological software, the functions of the uh, physical organs. And then we do have a mental body, the software that goes with the brain. And then we can even talk about an archetypal supramental body because this, this uh, archetypes, love, beauty, justice, they cannot be directly memorized by the brain, but we can make indirect representation, very positive, noble experience with the mind and the vital, with feelings. And those uh, circuits that we build, that software, those software can be called a soul software. So this body, vital, mind, soul, and then spirit, which cannot be memorized, and therefore that's the complete free, uh, oneness, uh, momentary experience. This is what we are, the five bodies of consciousness. 
five bodies of the human being. And so we have to care for all the five bodies if we really want uh, to keep ourselves healthy. And same thing for happiness, same thing for psychological health. So in this way, we are really getting a very wonderful perspective that not only integrates science and spirituality, but a better way to live, better way to live. By combining spirituality in our living, we are improving our physiology, increasing our mental health, improving our intelligence, in improving the potentialities that our whole society are entitled to. Well, Dr. Amit Goswami, this has been a very inspirational conversation. Uh, we could talk all day long about these things because the brain itself and the human organism is so complex. And you've really come up with a picture that unifies psychology, physics, uh, brain science, uh, and medicine, and, and human development. It's very exciting. I'm delighted to be able to share this with the New Thinking Aloud audience. And I hope that we can uh, arrange future interviews with you to follow up on this, as well as with your writing partner, uh, Dr. Uh, Valentina Anasar. That would be wonderful. I'm looking forward to that. And Jeff, it has been always enjoyable talking to you and appearing on this show. I love it. Thank you. Well, thank you for being with me. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. Mm -hmm.